I got a number of different soil samples that were shown to me, but I didn't actually see any that said anything about buffering capacity. Of course, I didn't look over them thoroughly. But the old, the old school of thought was, you know, you take your soil sample in, you get it tested, they'll tell you what the buffering capacity is. So I wanted to kind of describe what the buffering capacity is, and to me it's kind of worthless, but, you know, sometimes they give it to you. But um, the term buffering capacity is usually associated with the soil's ability to resist changes in pH. So remember we talked earlier about percent base saturation of hydrogen and uh, cationic, you know, uh, and how that relates to the pH in the soil, as well as, you know, the percent base saturation being related to the total cation exchange capacity of a soil. So if you know the total cation exchange capacity of a soil, we'll say it's a really high number, we'll just exaggerate, we'll say 100. So that means that if you have a pH of 6.5, then that 10% is the equivalent of a, P, a CEC of 10 being saturated with nothing but hydrogen. So if you want to change that pH, you got to put a tremendous amount of lime down, right? So you see, when, you, when you're using soil mineral balancing, when you use Albrecht's system of soil mineral balancing to work with your soils, buffering capacity becomes really essentially meaningless. So these old uh, school of thoughts that really go way back, I mean, literally, I think it's about 100 years ago or so that when they started using buff buffering capacity and they just didn't want to let it go. But that's where that comes from. So. Um, however, let's see, now the other issue is, is aluminum. Now, if you have a soil that you can, maybe it's contaminated with aluminum or it just naturally has high levels of aluminum, buff, uh, what that aluminum does is that it restricts your, uh, I talked earlier how it pulls those hydrogen ions off of the water, I'm sorry, the hydroxide ions off of the water, putting hydroxide, hydrogen ions into the soil solution and then uh, increasing the pH. So another issue in buffering capacity is how much calcium do you need to put in the soil to remove aluminum? Does that make sense? So there's not just the hydrogen that's associated with your pH and your base saturation, but also the aluminum that's in your soil. So these are the two things that you really need to look at. It's referred to as desorbed from the soil exchange sites, et cetera, et cetera. So, well, uh, so buffering capacity for more information. So let's see. We look at the actual pH aluminum concentration in parts per million in the soil. You see as your aluminum increases in parts per million, which uh, is the equivalent of, you know, you multiply that by two and you'll get pounds to the acre or kilograms to the hectare. So if we start at about zero, you usually, it has no real serious effect. Uh, as you start to increase that all the way up to as high as uh, 40 pounds to the acre, you can see that you end up with about um, pH dropping down to about 3.7 or so, which is a very exaggerated scenario of aluminum toxicity. Uh, let's see here. Aluminum also, uh, you know, when you put the lime down, again, look at the root system of these seedlings as compared to, uh, compared to these seedlings in a soil with high levels of aluminum. It's, it's very, I mean, it's very obvious what's going on with your root system here. This is where I talked about having healthy roots, having the right calcium level. It's not necessarily all about aluminum, 
but because the aluminum drives that acidity, when that calcium comes in, you remove that aluminum, now you have that ability for those bonds to form in the, in the middle lamella of the root cells to make those roots strong, because remember, your roots have no epidermal, I'm sorry, they have no cuticles. They have no waxy cuticles to protect the exterior. You don't want a waxy cuticle. You need ion exchanges, right? If you have a waxy cuticle, you're not going to be able to do that. So because you don't have that, the only real defense we have is proper mineralogy in our soil solution to give us healthy roots in our crops. Now, okay, so the take home on, I didn't really want to talk a whole lot on buffering capacity because I don't feel like there's all that much to say. But uh, let's see here. The real take home here is that soil with the CEC and low pH will have a higher buffering capacity. I'm sorry, what am I saying here? Soils with a high CEC and a low pH will have a higher buffering capacity. So that means it takes a lot more of lime or whatever nutrient you need to use to change that pH, whether it be dolomitic or calcitic limestone. Soils, soils with a low CEC and a low pH will have a lower buffering capacity, which means it takes less, cal you know, less uh, lime to change that pH. It's very simple. Okay, so... Um, Here's an example of where I don't really give pH a tremendous amount of respect. I am looking here at a greenhouse soil. What is the pH? 8.8. .8. You see that? Now, if I told you I had a pH of 8.8 .8 and I told you that I was going to lime, most of you would think I'm crazy, right? That's a school of thought. But in this particular scenario, I looked at it and I said, no way. I need a lime like crazy because when I got down here, the soil nutrient balancing is always more important than pH because when we look at this, 36% calcium, 38% potassium. What is going on here? This is, this is what happens when you use excessive amounts of compost. You get your potassium so high, but it doesn't necessarily change your pH, and you end up with a serious imbalance. So what, do you, what, what can I do? besides lime. And another thing I'll tell you folks that lime, calcium carbonate, cannot raise your pH any higher than eight. So if you're already at an eight and up, adding lime is not gonna increase your pH. It, it scientifically cannot, it's impossible. So if you have a pH of eight and anything higher than that, add all the lime you wish, you're not gonna increase your pH. <laughs> There's no hydroxide in that lime to increase that pH to some exaggerated level. It can only go up to eight, shows over. That doesn't mean you won't release that calcium and lock up, that, uh, lock up some other nutrient. In this case, we're really interested in locking up potassium and making it uh, unavailable and getting that calcium in there. But when we look at our potassium, what's our recommended value? 964 pounds to the acre. What do I have? 9,180 pounds to the acre. I got 10 times more potassium than I really need in this soil. That's a serious imbalance. This is, how, this is what we mean when we say over and over again, your soil is not balanced. Imbalances in your soil are what is, is what's causing all these diseases and other pathogens. In this particular scenario, this greenhouse, what was it getting hit hard with? Disease. How many of you were in my class yesterday? <coughs> Quite a bit of you. Remember one of the diseases I said would thrive in a, a nice, healthy, composted soil with a nice, you know, healthy-looking and smelling soil with lots and lots of compost 
Fusarium wilt will come right in and hit those roots and tear them all up. And away goes your crop. So I changed that one. Let's look at another one. Basic soil relationships, supply of nutrients from organic matter. Now I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I'll start talking about the, f the soil food web. How many of you guys have heard of the soil food web? Got one guy. Awesome. Two guys. That's it. You've heard it? Three? Four? You're all hearing about it now, huh? All right. Okay, so remember I talked about organic matter and everything that was ever alive that has died and all its excrement it ever put in the ground while it was alive, etc., etc. Anyway, uh, that, all these organisms in your soil are breaking things down, um, and it's essentially like a food chain, right? In the soil, way on the top of the food chain, you have you know, arthropods. Actually, you have worms, which are not in this picture. You'd put earthworms probably all the way at the very top. Um, you know, the birds, of course, come in and they eat the earthworms and the little arthropods and little mites and things that are growing in there, springtails, etc. Most of those mites and springtails and worms and things will feed on uh, nematodes, and some nematodes will feed on these arthropods, but then fungus will feed on some of those guys. Some of those guys will feed on the fungus, the protozoa, etc., all the way down to the bacteria. And then most of these guys down here, all through here, are feeding on, either on each other or on the organic matter. But it's a whole, I mean, it's a party of people just. It really, it's like the Sahara. The best way that I could describe it is like going on one of these, uh, you know, African Sahara expeditions where you drive through and you've got lions and cheetahs and elephants and, you know, safaris. I'm sorry, I said Sahara. I, forgive me, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> my brain's getting tired. Thank you. Uh, safari. It's like going on an African safari, right? And you've got cheetahs and lions and you've got, you know, zebras and you've got all these other animals and you have all this activity running around and, Creatures feeding on other creatures and other feed, uh, creatures feeding on the ground. Essentially, that's what's going on in the soil, except it's all microscopic, and you just don't see that. And all of this, uh, you know, you have different levels of trophic. You even have big animals like this. These guys move through the soil, and they're breaking the soil up, digging holes and opening it up and doing all these other things. And anyhow, that's, that's it. Um, when we look at a square meter of soil, you have in one square meter, on average, anyhow, not every square meter has a bird on it, but yes, on average, you have one bird per every square meter. You have about 100 snails and slugs per every square meter, uh, about 3,000 potworms and earthworms, etc. Uh, and as you see, it just gets bigger and bigger. This is a huge pyramid that by the time you get down to mites, you have about 100,000 mites, and then you get down to nematodes, you got about 5 million nematodes per every square meter of soil. And then by the time you get all the way down to the bottom, you have bacteria and actinomycetes, uh, I don't even know what that number is. 10 trillion or something or 10,000 trillion? I don't know. It's a big number. It's a tremendous amount of organisms in one square meter of soil that you should have there. Not every soil has it because some soils are really beat up and most of this is missing. So this is what's called living soil. Why? Because all these organisms are living in it. All right. So... As these soils live in this, live in the, uh, as these organisms live in the soil, they're breaking things down and they're doing all these other things that oftentimes most folks don't understand. So the terms that's been coined is the nitrogen cycle, the phosphorus cycle, and the sulfur cycle, and you even got potassium cycles and calcium cycles. Any major nutrient, actually any nutrient period, goes through these cycles of where, for a period of time, it's associated with a living organism. And then it's not. 
and then it's locked up in some sort of method where it's not available to the plants, and then it's released to the plants, and then it becomes plant again. It's a living organism. It's consumed by another organism, and then it dies, and it just goes through these cycles of life and death over and over again. These are referred to as cycles. So this one here is the nitrogen cycle. Looks extremely complicated, right? It's really not. <laughs> it is, but it's not. In the middle, you have organic matter right here. The organic matter, like I said, is anything that was ever living. Now, or even, you could even say, no, anything that has ever lived and is in the soil. Now, we can start this cycle anywhere, but we'll start on the top where you have the most nitrogen. Now, nitrogen in the atmosphere, I believe, is 78%, if I remember, of the 78% of the atmosphere is nitrogen. How do we get that nitrogen out of the atmosphere and into the roots? Well, for five, no, for, well, what was it? Yeah, 5,930 years or so, it was all done by living organisms which the Lord had created. Until uh, the Second World War broke out in Europe, and I believe it was the United States and the UK put a blockade in China, I'm sorry, in Chile, and we could no longer access Chilean nitrate. Or, well, the Nazis had no access to Chilean nitrate. They needed it in order to get, make, make munitions. So uh, they really pushed their scientists to figure things out, and the Haber-Bosch process was born. Now we take energy, uh, we take the uh, atmospheric air, we compress it to really high uh, pressures. I think it's something like 3,000 or 30,000 pounds per square inch, and then we pull the, nitri the, the nitrogen out of that. It requires an insane amount of energy to get the nitrogen out of the air. But it's calculated that today we have, well, what, over 7 billion people on this planet, and that half of the nitrogen that it takes to form your body, all the proteins that are in your body, came from the Haber-Bosch process. In other words, they didn't come from natural processes. That's the estimate as of today. That's pretty impressive when you think that half of your body came from a mechanical process that was necessary in order to grow the food that made you. That's pretty impressive. So that's the mechanical method. Now, if we look at the natural method, so again, the Haber-Bosch process is actually part of what has really allowed the population to boom on this planet. That's what I was going to say. So, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have the population we have right now. No, between yeah, that and chemical agriculture, yes. But, I mean, that's just the nitrogen portion. Right. I'll talk about phosphorus. <laughs> All of our pro protein, yes, but uh, so you know, there's this is energy intensive. As the price of energy goes up, the price of fertilizer goes up. The price of fertilizer goes up, the price of food. The price of food goes up, the amount of people that are hungry go up. So it's just it's a domino effect. There's no way to get away with it. But there are ways to grow on your own without being dependent on nitrogen fertilizers. So what did the world do? How did God design this initially? Well, this is very complex, it seems, but anyhow, we'll start off with, oh, well, we had the atmosphere, atmospheric nitrogen. If you have very little nitrogen is fixed through lightning, um, fertilizer additions into the field, uh, industrial fixation is, of course, is that fertilizers. But then you have nitrogen fixation from uh, rhizobium, alfalfa, and soybeans. Uh, I think mesquite does it as well. 
And you also have non-symbiotic nitrogen fixation from blue-green algae, azotobacter, and clostrium. These are the organisms that actually fix the nitrogen. They will fix it for the plant. So these are, these are usually in the soil. They have, if it's symbiotic, it's got some sort of relationship with the roots. Uh, but anyway, the nitrogen comes from there. Eventually, it's broken down uh, through uh, ammonium volatilization. It can go, be, uh, nitrosomonas will do that in the nitrobacter, making nit nitrate, which will actually be taken up by the plants. Uh, and then, of course, if it go goes through denitrification, it will go back into the atmosphere. And then uh, you also have ammonification, so the ammonium can also be taken up by the plants. But anyhow, uh, that's it right there. And uh, the biggest issue we fight with is leaching and denitrification. So when you're turning to synthetic nitrogen sources and you're dumping all these fertilizers into the ground, as we've been doing on this for quite some time now, we end up with an awful lot of leaching because it's estimated that for every you know, 100 pounds of nitrogen that's put on the ground, only about 25 pounds are actually used to make the crop. So the rest of it is going somewhere else. A lot of loss in these systems. Where is it going? Largely to leaching and to denitrification, which goes right back into the atmosphere. So it's just being lost. The other thing that happens is you end up with way too much nitrogen in the crop. And we have so many diseases in our crops simply because we have way too much nitrogen in the ground. Uh, more intelligent applications of nitrogen are really needed. And, and, and a better understanding of how nitrogen should be managed according to the way God intended it to be managed. Not just by the dumping of synthetic chemicals. And I'm not opposed to using these chemicals, folks. I mean, the, uh, the, the plants can only take up nitrate. And they can only take up ammonium. Those are the only two types of nitrogens they can take up. Where that nitrate or where that ammonium came from you know, varies. Did it come from a bag that you went and bought? Or did it come from the compost you put in the ground? Or the cover crop that you tilled into the ground? Or the manure that you perhaps you amended with? All of those eventually break down and form nitrate or ammonium. There's no difference in the molecule. It's identical. It's just that it's where it came from and how it got there that's different. Um, this is a phosphorus uh, cycle. It's very similar to the nitrogen cycle, except that Big difference with phosphorus is that we don't walk and breathe and have all this phosphorus around us. With phosphorus, we have to go look for phosphorus ore bodies. Then we have to mine that phosphorus out of the ground. Then we got to take it somewhere where it can be hit with acids and turned into these synthetic forms of phosphorus. We need these strong acids to do it in order to actually break those bonds uh, that are usually very tight bonds that plants cannot do by themselves. It takes microorganisms or something else to break that down, but we use strong acids and we form things like monoammonium phosphate or, or super triple phosphate, etc. and then we amend our soils with this. Um, of course, uh, when you use excessive amounts of phosphorus, which is two things that cause eutrophication, one's excessive nitrogen, the other one's excessive phosphorus. Nitrogen is contaminating our waters, drinking water. Phosphorus is contaminating our rivers and streams and oceans. Um, we have seen a tremendous amount of massive fish die-offs in the Mississippi River, in the Gulf of Mexico, in lakes and streams throughout all of uh, the, the Corn Belt of the United States due to excessive phosphorus fertilizers. And like somebody mentioned earlier, they said, is my phosphorus going to leach? Only when it's, you've applied so much that it's leaching. I mean, if you're leaching, you've got way too much. Because phosphorus really shouldn't even be moving in the soil. It's very immobile. It doesn't want to move. 
Then there's the sulfur cycle. Again, sulfur is typically a gas. Uh, it can come in largely through manures and animal products. Uh, but again, arid regions tend to be very deficient in this. Uh, and it too goes through multiple different cycles and it involves a lot of different bacterial organisms that can fix the sulfur out of the, ground, out of the air and put it into plant tissues and do other things with it. And it is likely complicated, it is also complicated, um, much like the phosphorus and nitrogen cycle. However, it's not as, a big, a, as big of a deal. In other words, it's not, you don't really hear about sulfur being uh, contaminating soils or anything else. But likewise, you have these cycles. But the, the key thing to take out of these cycles is that, I'm sorry, is that a lot of them are, are associated with the plant uptake and, and the breaking down of plant tissues. So the, the way that God had designed these, these, these nutrients to be managed is through actual growing of something, having it decay, break down, then break those, and then make those uh, nutrients available to the next generation. And it's the same with sulfur, with nitrogen, and with phosphorus, and many other nutrients, but mostly these anions that you can't hold in the soil that are so important to your crop and to the success of your crop that you need to manage through cover cropping and through proper, uh, you, know, break, you know, putting those tissues back into the ground. If you're just in a production system, where you're constantly bringing in truckloads of fertilizer, I mean, you just, you're, never, you're always going to have this expense. It's an expense that's not really necessary. And if we get to a point in life where we can't just go down to the fertilizer store and buy fertilizers, uh, well, then how do you grow a crop? You see, if you're dependent on the fertilizer man for fertilizer, what are you going to do in a time of no buy, no sell? So, you know, I don't normally bring that up unless I'm around Adventist, but yes. No buy, no sell means no buy, no sell of fertilizers, too. So we got to understand how to manage these nutrients without being dependent on the fertilizer man. So excessive use of synthetic fertilizers, the two nutrients of most concern, of course, I mentioned are nitrate and actually just nitrate, not so much ammonia. Though, well, nitrate fertilizers and ammonium fertilizers, because that ammonium can ultimately turn into nitrate and leach into the water tables. And then, of course, phosphorus. So... Here's something that's really, really interesting. In case you haven't heard this before, the world is running out of phosphorus. 70% of the phosphorus reserves in this planet are in Morocco, the Western Sahara. It's believed that in the future, there's going to be wars over phosphorus. In other words, our current production system, global food production system, is very fertilizer dependent. The Haber-Bosch process, you can do it anywhere. You just need machines and you need energy. You know what? You can put up a bunch of solar panels to spin the compressors and everything. You don't have to be dependent on fossil fuels for nitrate. But for phosphorus, you have to mine it. And the thing is, like crude oil, phosphorus, you know, remember, oil for the first part of the, most of the 20, first, what I think, all the way up to the early 70s, it was easily accessible. In other words, oil was cheap. By the 70s, uh, we had used up all the oil that was easily extractable, and now we had to spend more energy and more time to mine and to go and get new sources of oil. So we had to drill deeper, we had to start frocking, we had to go out to the middle of the oceans, and we had to go over to other countries and find these complicated places and these other places to get oil, to extract oil out of the ground that was very expensive to extract it. Essentially, that's where we're going. we're going. We're getting to the point where we are going to be totally out of phosphorus, easily extractable phosphorus, by the year 2033. That's not too far from you. That doesn't mean we'll be totally out of phosphorus. That means that all the easy-to-get-to phosphorus is going to be gone 
by 2033. Does that make sense? So that means around that time, we're going to expect to see increased prices in phosphorus. Because now, you can't just go to an ore body somewhere, extract that ore, and take it to a factory somewhere where it'll be treated with acids and turn into a fertilizer. So what's going to happen is that it's going to be more and more expensive because now you've got to fill a truck that maybe is only 10% phosphorus instead of 30% phosphorus. So you're getting a third of the efficiency. No phosphorus, no food. It's that simple. You've got to figure out how to manage these nutrients without being dependent on the fertilizer, man. A good way to scare yourself is by Googling phosphorus shortage. Just, nobody ever talks about it. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal until there's nothing to eat at Walmart and all them places. But anyway, agriculture, today's agriculture, the way they practice it, requires a lot of fertilizers, whether it's nitrogen, it's phosphorus, whatever it is. They turn to fertilizers and they tell you, dump it, dump it, and dump it, and dump it. Like the, I talked with somebody earlier about one of the fields I have in Massachusetts was grown, they've been growing potatoes on it for a number of years now. Uh, the literature tells you, hey, you need a lot of phosphorus to grow big potatoes. So what do the farmers do? They just keep dumping it on there. They don't even know whether they need it or not or how much is there. They don't even bother to check. They just know that the bulletin, extension bulletin, they read it. You need 200 pounds or whatever a year of phosphorus. So that, that, go put 200 pounds of phosphorus per acre onto the field. Do you need 200 pounds of phosphorus to the acre of field? I have no idea, but they do it. So then I go and I test their soils. They got six times more phosphorus than they need. They needed to stop putting phosphorus a long time ago. It's amazing. But that's the, that's the way the industry operates. The Lord says again and again, the Lord has instructed that our people are to take their families out of the cities into the country where they can raise their own provisions. For in the future, the problem of buying and selling is a serious one. Let me ask you something. Somebody told you you can't buy an iPhone? Are you going to be upset? Maybe, maybe not. Some of you might be, some of you might not be. What if they told you, you, you know, like Venezuela right now, you get one bar of soap for your whole family every month? Is that a big deal? That's all you get in Venezuela. That's your, that's your soap ration. Your food ration? <laughs> You're going to get nothing. When economies collapse, you're dependent on your ration, just like it was in Europe, it is in Venezuela today. So when she said the issue of buying and selling is a serious one, we oftentimes think that, that you know, we're talking about Sunday laws or we're talking about persecution, etc., etc. There's a lot of trouble coming to this world that has really nothing to do with that. But even at that point, the issue in buying, in, with buying and selling is like if, if you can't buy food, it, it, you're in trouble. You know what? If you don't have soap, it's like, you know what? Who cares if I don't have soap? If I don't have food, that's a problem. Big problem. Anyhow, that's coming down the road. You can see it. You know, there's a lot of other calamities in the world. You know, economics, oil, war, politics, blah, 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 blah. All these things seem to be colliding. To add another one to your list is the shortage of fertilizers because of the way that we grow. And that's not that far down the road. Excessive phosphorus, they put it into the ground in excessive amounts because they think they need it. It goes into the rivers. 
It kills the fish in the rivers. It kills the fish in the oceans. It kills the ecosystem in there. It causes algae blooms. And, you know, well, can't eat fish either now. It's gone too. This is an example of eutrophication in this river here. I think this is in India, if I remember right, or, or somewhere in uh, Thailand or one of those countries, I forget, in Southeast Asia. Uh, anyhow, this is what it does to the water, and this is what you're starting to see a lot in the uh, upper Mississippi River and in the Gulf of Mexico. Louisiana deals with this a lot. Um, really bad shape. So, like I mentioned earlier, <laughs> mentioned earlier, corporations, a lot of this is really dealt with these big corporate agricultural businesses that, you know, they just, this is what's going on in the world. Everybody's rushing to the cities. And this whole, right now, I think last year, 2018, was a pinnacle because for the first time in the world's history, 50% of the world's population lived in cities. The problem with cities is food doesn't grow in cities. So that means 50% of the world's population is dependent upon somebody farming to feed them. And as we're told, properties will be offered for us, offered for sale in the rural districts at a price below the real cost because the owners desire city advantages. That's exactly what is going on today. The kids don't want to farm the way daddy and grandpa farmed. Off to the cities. They sell the properties at low at these prices, off to the highest bidder, the farm's gone and another generation of farmers can't come in. It was God's plan that the land should be returned to the children after, you know, every jubilee, every 50 years. If you sold a piece of property, your land, you're supposed to give it back after 50 years so that no matter what, it'll go back. If you get a stubborn generation that doesn't want to farm, fine, go. It goes to the next generation. That was God's plan. That was the, that's what God instituted in the Bible, that every single family should have a piece of land big enough to grow their own provisions. That's what he intended for Israel. And because the world has decided, you know, not to do things the biblical way, everybody's rushing into the cities and getting out of the rural areas. There's less and less people farming globally. More and more issues are going to come up with food because we're depending upon farmers to grow more and more and more and increase their yields and increase their yields to feed an ever-increasing population in the city. And that is what is leading to these shortages, to these, uh, essentially just the destruction of the planet. Another quote, ignorance is doing its baleful work. <laughs> we don't know how to farm intelligently. So what do we do? We make decisions with misinformation, poor information, or no information. And as the statement clearly says, ignorance is doing is baleful work. Because we do not understand what we're doing. We are not successful in agriculture. We call it quits. And we move to the city. And we live in these conditions, like what's going on in India and China. They're, they can't stop building these things. Look at that cliff. This is what's going on in the world. People are rushing into the cities because the farms don't produce anymore. I look at and these, tell me, I mean, study the bubonic plague in Europe. What happened in Europe? That's what's coming. How can you possibly have health in these living conditions? Look at this. There's no hope for that. As the population in urban areas increases, so will the pressure on the world's agro-ecosystems. We're constantly pushing these systems to produce more and more and more. We're picking our genetics and our, and our varieties and our plants to produce 
calories to just grow as much food as we possibly can. Consumption, but little nutrition. The world is getting sicker and sicker and sicker. It's just a mess. <coughs> Serious global mass consolidation of agricultural production. Everybody's buying everybody out right now. Every time you know these markets crash or whatever, they go and they buy out another big greenhouse operation. They go and they buy out another company. You know, uh, Monsanto bought out the Rooters, and then Bayer buys out Monsanto, etc. So now you're consolidating and consolidating and consolidating over and over and over again. And this is not God's design, not you know, not to be living in these cities. The Bible refers to cities as what an abomination, as a scar on the earth. A scar on the earth. <laughs> That's what this city is. Portland, a scar on the earth. <laughs> as beautiful as you may think it is. There's another issue beyond that. God does not design that men shall appropriate all that the earth produces for their own selfish purpose. He calls upon them to bring their tithes and offerings into the storehouse that there may be meat in his house. In India, China, Russia, and the cities of America, thousands of men and women are dying of starvation. Why? Because the moneyed men, because they have the power, control the market. This is very, very true in agricultural production. You don't set your price. You know? Apple, they make an iPhone. I want $1,000 for it. You're going to pay me $1,000 so you don't get my phone. I grow an apple, $2 a pound. Dollar a pound, 50 cents a pound. Whatever they tell me I'm going to get, that's what I'm going to get. I can't dictate my price. Or they just go and buy it from China and bring it into the United States. You know, that's what is destroying agriculture <laughs> as, a, as a business, as a viable business, is economics. Because moneyed men control the markets. They go wherever they can find cheap produce, and then they bring and they sell it here. What does she say? This means starvation to the poorer classes and will result in civil war. That's where we're headed. It's happening today. Armed conflicts all over the world. What were the, city, what were the countries that she mentioned? Russia. It's been at war with Ukraine for five years now. China is falling apart. People are leaving their cities. That's crashing their economy, which ultimately is, they claim is going to crash our economy. India is out of control. A lot of conflict. The United States, more and more conflict in our cities. It's funny because in the United States, she says the cities of America. She doesn't say the nation of the United States. Out of the cities is the cry. What is needed? In the cultivation of the soil, the thoughtful worker will find that treasure little dreamed of are opening up before him. No one can succeed in agricultural lines without, or gardening without attention to the laws involved. We need to understand what we're doing. If you are serious about gardening or farming, you've got to get serious about understanding the soil the science of the soil, and what you're doing, or you're not going to figure it out. Any questions? Okay, so the questions about the soil food web and how do you develop a healthy soil food web. Uh, first things first, get a healthy soil chemistry. The moment you get a healthy soil chemistry, you'll begin to push biological organisms into the right balance because you will create an environment for them. You build the house, they will come. His question is, okay, let's say put ourselves in a period of no no buy, no sell. Let's pretend that just happened yesterday. Oh, we're all scared or whatever. How do we test our soils in a time of no buy, no sell? My answer to you is, my an here's what you'll learn if you start growing. First off, if you get your soil in the right direction, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take years. So 
the thing is, if you think one day they're going to pass a Sunday law, you're going to run off into the woods, you're going to start growing things, it's not going to happen because there's so much you need to learn. And this, you know, the earth is waxing old like a garment. You got, it's going to take time for you to fix that soil. It might take three, four, five years for you to fix it. But like it took three or four or five years for you to fix it, if you're going to mess it up, it's going to take three, four or five years for you to mess it up. In other words, if you're doing things right and you're doing things right and suddenly it's over, no buy, no sell, you've got at least three to five years before you really need to worry about it. And from my understanding of the prophecies, all we need is three and a half. Other things is how can we, I guess, identify issues under those same circumstances of time of no buy, no sell. There's a book written by Charles Walters titled um, Weeds, Control Without Poisons. That's an excellent book. It's just got a whole bunch of pictures of weeds, and he tells you, if you got this weed, this is probably what's going on. If you got that weed, this is probably what's going on, etc., etc. Just correcting the imbalances in your soil will oftentimes get rid of all... Uh, I won't say it'll get rid of your weeds, but what it will do is that it's going to change your weed pressure. In other words, it's going to change the type of weeds that are growing. And all a weed is, is a plant out of place. You know, so... You fix that, maybe you're not going to have Canadian thistle or Johnson grass or what have you, but you'll have a weed growing that is far more desirable and easier to deal with than some of these real serious rhizomes or other weeds that are very invasive and are difficult to overcome. The thing is, first off, with phosphorus, you, you, I guess the issue, his concern is, well, if they were to start wars over phosphorus, um, well, I don't know that they'll really start wars over phosphorus, but, uh, you know, it's maybe not, you know, wars of bullets and guns and bombs, maybe trade wars, which is really interesting, but um, I don't know what other type of war they'll invent next. But, uh, yeah, there'll definitely be struggles over natural resources. Uh, phosphorus is one of those re natural resources that I definitely can see uh, us debating. The United States, I didn't put a thing up there, but the United States was ranked third as having the highest phosphorus reserves. So Morocco is obviously the, the highest, and then I forget who, I think it was Mexico, and then the United States, I don't remember exactly. But anyhow, there's quite a bit of phosphorus in the United States for now, but you know, when will that be used up? I, I don't know. Uh, but for us, phosphorus in our systems as well, if you have the right phosphorus levels in your soils, it takes a long time to really remove it and to get to a point where you're deficient. Oftentimes, it takes people an extremely long time to get to a point where they actually get it right. Okay, you're saying that the only thing that you consume is being removed or maybe it could be leached. Well, first off, phosphorus, if you have the right levels, shouldn't leach. It won't leach. The only thing you're going to remove, the only thing is going to be missing is whatever the crop took up. So a lot of that factory to build the fruit, if you will, is going to, should go back into the ground. Yeah, that's a question folks ask a lot. If I'm going to affect my, how does tilling affect my biology? Well, tilling, tillage, first off, if you're going to grow vegetables, it's next to impossible to grow vegetables without tillage, um, some type of tillage. I mean, if you grow potatoes, how do you get the potatoes out of the ground? You're going to have to, have to break that ground somehow. If you grow carrots or any other root crop, it's the same way. Uh, so there's no way to avoid that. Uh, with other crops, um, you're looking at, the possibility of destroying the fungal biologies or fungal communities in, in that soil, but you're not going to destroy the bacterial communities right away. You might 
affect them by destroying the, so the soil in a different way by not having the right chemistry in the soil or uh, you know, poor organic, uh, percent organic matter in the soil, which you're, you can affect with excessive tillage because every time you till, you get more oxygen into the ground, which can burn up some of that organic matter and then, of course, lower the percent organic matter. But that usually happens in systems where we're, you're never returning back to the ground. In other words, whatever you harvest, you take it all. Uh, like in some of the, uh, here in the Willamette Valley, they grow a lot of grass seed. Well, they go through with the combine and they collect all the grass seed, right? Well, then they come in with the balers and the rakes and they rake up every part of the, the grass so that there essentially almost no organic matter goes back into the, in the ground. That gets bailed up, it gets put on a ship, container ship and sent to Japan. It never comes back to the United States. They sell 100% of what they grow. So in that kind of a system, you can see the organic matter just dropping. Uh, so this is one of those things where if you're removing the entire portion of the plant, everything but the root, you're likely that you're, and then you're you know, tilling every year or multiple times a year sometimes with vegetable production. You're, there's a lot of tillage involved with vegetable production or as we would call it, cultivating to reduce the weeds and to come in and, uh, you, know, you know, hilling potatoes is technically cultivation or uh, hilling your leeks is cultivation. Uh, so that's also tillage. So that type of stuff, you know, we, it's, it's very difficult to argue against doing those things. But what will they really destroy? That's, uh, that's a, a highly debated <laughs> topic. Uh, but bacteria is a difficult thing to destroy. Usually it's typically fungus. Uh, you, you may get rid of moles and mice and stuff like that, which is kind of part of the food web. So technically that's the biology as well. But that's a question that is very open-ended and requires a lot of discussion. But if in most of your vegetable production systems, I don't know how you could produce it without tillage of some sort. Yeah, he's saying he has a BCS tiller. Is it possible to till some of the weeds after they get to a certain height? I have found, and many others have found, that when the weeds get that big, tillage is no longer effective at controlling them. So what happens is you really need to be going in there when they're at a seedling stage because then those root systems get so big that when you come in and you try to cut the top, uh, you're, you're not going to destroy those crowns. So just kind of like you're mowing with a tiller, which is a very difficult thing to do ever go down these rows of these tillers and establish weeds, it, it can be a headache, a serious headache to do this. Uh, and then, of course, whatever you manage to knock down just comes right back up next week. You're back to grass again. So the best way to control it, or at least what is practiced, particularly in organic agriculture, is to get in there at the seedling stage, only scrape the top two inches. You just want to come in and destroy those seedlings because all the seeds that are going to germinate are always going to be in the top two inches of the soil. So you just want to disturb only those top two inches of the soil. So you don't really need to till it. You don't want to go deep, no. You just want to go through the surface. This is why like hula hose and hose are used for weeding. Yeah. I've never, I've never tried to silage tarp to try, uh, to try to kill seeds, but I've, I know that from some instances it has actually been pretty effective uh, because what they do, I've, I've seen them use the silage tarp. I've also seen them use like clear greenhouse plastic and then uh, you know it'll get real hot in there, and it'll kill off some of the seed, uh, as well as kill off some of the pathogens, which is nice. Um, and then when they remove it, you know, they can come in and do other things, but grow whatever they're going to grow with less weed pressure and disease pressure. But I have never tried it myself. Flame weeders, um, I've, I've never used one. I've been want, want, we've been looking at trying to get one for carrots. However. Yeah, it works off the same principle. It destroys all the seeds, but again, it's usually just the, the surface of the soil. 
Uh, it doesn't even go but fractions of an inch deep, so the top two inches are usually going to germinate on you. So you, it requires multiple passes. Yeah, and if you have young plants there, drunk transplants or anything coming up, uh, it can destroy them. Yeah, that's another thing, the propane. Yeah, I, I didn't even go there. The propane alone on these flame weeders sometimes can just eat, you, eat up any of your profits. I mean, you have, with the flame weeders, you have almost all the same expense, at least in a big production system. Uh, if it's just a small garden, then it's a different story. But I mean, if we're talking about acres of vegetable production, you still have the expense of you know getting a guy on a tractor, having him drive down the tractor, drive down a few rows and flame weed something. Uh, so you have all your fuel and labor and, and maintenance expenses with the machine that you would have if you just put a basket weeder on there or finger weeders or something, and you did the same thing. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.